welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing uh, Time of Contempt Chapter 4. This is the big Sanit Coup chapter. Uh, the big one. I covered Babylon 5 just prior to the Witcher Saga on this series. Um, and if you were listening to the podcast prior or whatever or went back, um, a lot of what I had to say about Separate Dreams... Uh, is also true here. This is the big turning point. This is when the status quo gets shattered to a million pieces, and then what is assembled is, uh, you know, from those pieces, it's going to be entirely different. The series cannot be the same from this chapter onwards. Same with Severed Dreams, uh, Babylon 5. Um, it's the big one. It's the reset of everything, um, and sets each of our three main characters on the journey that is going to uh, encompass the rest of the books, um, uh, at least in the main saga, not counting season storms, this is a prequel, um, you know, and uh, I, I think this chapter, you know, really gets everybody in the gear and go, oh, there is a larger plan here because you know, Blood of Elves talked about this doesn't have plot, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It was a character building, relationship building book and it was great for that we need that for this to have impact uh but for people who want a faster pace more used to western media especially more modern media that kind of pace is detrimental to them and so this chapter really knocks people down and goes no 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 all of that was necessary to make this matter and so um it really it really does hit you pretty damn hard uh, constantly, uh, and in the way Sapkowski sort of weaves through the events, uh, you know, starting with Siri, you know, getting premonitions, uh, to, uh, the events that, that unfolded as Geralt, you know, went outside, all the way to the Garsting stuff, uh, flashing back to Siri, uh, and stuff there, and then following Siri and Geralt, as they weave in and out of each other's range throughout Thanid trying to survive this. It is an action-packed, relentlessly paced chapter that grabs you by the scruff of the neck and does not let you go. It is an amazing, amazing piece of storytelling. How even in all this action, there is still a lot of character work happening. There is still a lot of thematics happening. And it's not just mindless violence for the sake of mindless violence. It actually, A, has a point, And then B, furthers everything. And gives it this momentum to just keep on chugging. Uh, it's rare to find a chapter that is just so so relentless in its pacing but it's done this intentionally as sort of a an attempt to uh really whack the 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 reader i suppose you know in the blood of elves very slow and then uh, chapters one through three of time of contempt relatively slow with you know some faster paced elements but for the most part it's a lot of you know slow to then and there's nothing wrong with that i love that kind of pace but then Thanid coup chapter chapter four here comes and whacks you over the head and it, it, it's like getting whiplash where you immediately you sense a difference and it, it's a difference for the characters it's a difference for us the reader and so we are along for the ride with Geralt and Ciri and Yen as they traverse this moral quagmire of politics in hopes of maybe getting back together and maybe living a life together because that's all that really goddamn matters in the face of it but no one else cares what they want. The world has other plans. 
Um, and so, like, Codring or Finn are killed uh, by a half-elf, who we will learn his name later, and it'll become plot important later, but I won't say it now for spoilers. Uh, and Siri saw all this, and they were finding out about the Elder Blood stuff, and that supposedly there is this curse that is on the Elder Blood. Who knows how, what it is exactly, or if it's an actual curse or not. Uh, but Lara Doran supposedly said a curse when she, you know, when she was dying, um, which then uh, perpetuated itself through the bloodline and was seen most fiercely in Falka, a uh, a descendant uh, supposedly of the Elder Blood, who Ciri may or may not be related to. We will come back to that later, uh, you know, in the future chapters. I'm not going to talk about that now. Um, and so, uh, maybe this is it again, and that the, the, the prophecy, Athene's prophecy can be read as a world dying to be reborn anew, that a world is going to be reborn through strife and conflict and chaos, and maybe this bloodline is responsible for it. Who is to say exactly? That's the thing about prophecies, you know. It's just an, it's just a guess. You never really know. It is a, it is a poor uh, light to shine your way. Uh, prophecy is definitely not something you should be shining in hopes of getting across the road correctly, as these books will show you. Is because everything has its own interpretation, you know. Uh, and so, uh, giving this all in mind, you know, this suddenly shines light on everything that the kings and the mages have been doing you know they all want siri for one particular purpose or another it's always political and it's always the prophecy is somewhere in the background you know uh, uh vilgefortz is working for Ramir, at least he thinks he is the girl says you know <laughs> you're too arrogant to notice that uh you're being played you know he sent he, he sent the black knight here you know there is no way that you're his only pawn um you know, uh, but Vilgefortz wants Siri for his own reasons. Amir wants Siri for his own reasons. Both are related to the bloodline and prophecy. The monarchs, you know, want to uh, marry her off, get uh, secure a hold in Sintra. Amir wants something similar, but slightly twisted in a way. The mages want her because she's a source and she's a font of magic, and who knows what destiny uh, has in store for her. And so they want to guide her in a way that they feel will both best benefit them. Uh, you know, Dijkstra needs her to, uh, in hopes of uh, controlling the situation and able to manipulate it in the favor of his king. Um, and, you know, Philippa wants something similar. And, and so there's like this entire situation of everybody has their own wants for Siri. But no one ever asked her what she wanted. No one ever really cared. The only two people who did are stuck in this mess inadvertently. You know, Geralt through his own scruples, uh, which I think is a perfect meta-commentary on the saga as a whole. That, uh, and, and I think it's important to note that, along with a, a scene between him, Marty, uh, Dora Geryon, etc., is very important in really showing, you know, how Geralt acts and what he says he does and what he does and how that is contradictory. In here, it mentions, you know, the world's events would have went differently if the Witcher didn't have scruples. But he had scruples. So he decided not to piss off the balcony, um, potentially wilt a flower, and instead go out and find some place to, you know, safely relieve himself of that. 
and inadvertently got caught in the middle of the coup. And there are two coups happening. It's the Vilgefortes, uh, with Francesca bringing in Scoyatel, uh on, on behalf of Nothgard. And then you have Philippa, who has Dijkstra bringing in Redinian soldiers on behalf of those battling against Vilgefort. So two coups simultaneously, each battling each other with a neut- neutral party stuck in the middle. And Gell gets stuck in this and... You know, he doesn't take a side, but he also doesn't remain neutral. Uh, the mage that is with Marty and helping her with Dora Gary just starts fleeing and is like, I'm going to go away. You know, uh, we remain neutral and blah, 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 blah. And uh, Geralt just basically sees him in utter contempt, fitting, considering the title. Uh, and the reason is, is that lives are being lost. There is a difference between neutrality and indifference, and so it's a it is a fine line between them. And there in that that quagmire of difference is uh, often ignored by others, and those who understand the principles follow it to the best of their ability. Like Geralt, you know, he has throughout these books not remained neutral, despite him saying he's remaining neutral. What he is being is he's not being indifferent. So neutrality and indifference you know, aren't the same thing, but can be used interchangeably depending on the person's perspective. For him, it is neutrality. Technically, yes, he's also not indifferent. So when people are harmed, he will go save them, but he won't, you know, stand in the way and absolutely and help, say, I don't know, a crazy person like Vilgefortz or a, you know, a political snake like Dijkstra. You know, he's taking the side and the side is his family, the protection of those he loves. First and foremost, uh, there's a difference between neutrality and indifference. Um, and in a polarized situation like the coup, where you have two sides battling it out and you have a bunch of people stuck in the middle wavering between, you know, personal safety, the safety of others and what what they morally believe in. Those those people in the middle are often called cowards, called the worst of the worst by each side, because each side thinks that they are correct and the other one must die. Uh, and that leads to pure misery and pain. We even see it repeatedly when Geralt was just out, you know, <laughs> to go pee, basically, and he got wrapped in the situation. No one believes him. Everybody thinks, oh, he's got a greater motive. He's working for that Yennefer. You know, she's got she's got him wrapped around her finger. What is he doing? He's like, I just came out here to go pee. You know, like, he... It was an innocuous thing. Him and Yennefer didn't even think of this. And yet everybody assumes that's the case because who isn't thinking about this according to them? And me and Josh talked a lot about the mage, as he calls them, the mage one presenters, uh, which I think is a great term. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the complacency and the arrogance of these people. Eretuza is an illusion. You know, it's a crumbling old fortress that has long, long served its usefulness. Uh, and we saw that last chapter uh, where Geralt almost falls through the illusion. And then now, now that the barriers have been taken down, the, you know, the magic, uh, the thing stopping magic from being cast at Garstang, taken down, the illusions are faltering because they have no one to withhold them, that the true Eratus is being shown, a decrepit, decaying old fortress. But... This is what they wanted to hide, 
they thought themselves impenetrable. They thought themselves unaging. They thought themselves perfect. And so they made their home look like that. And then when the truth comes out, when there is no one left to maintain that illusion, both figuratively, you know, and literally, it crumbles, showing what was truly there all the time. Dijkstra directly points this out when he's observing uh, some of the mages uh, j during during the coup and how all the craziness is happening in Garsting, but there's a bunch of lower mages here that aren't as concerned with that stuff that are, you know, canoodling and having sex in the middle of the ballroom, and there's no reason for it. It's They act like children because that's what they are. They haven't grown up. They haven't thought things through. They're so decadent and complacent in their own power and assured of their place in society, they cannot see a possibility of it changing, ever. And that leads to decay and rot within and without. It always has, always will. Entropy is, the, is one of the basic facts of our universe. Everything dies eventually. It may take time, but everything will crumble into dust. And as a result, these mages didn't see it. Uh, and even the ones in the know took steps thinking that it would take longer. You know, the the entire situation where, where Philip and Kira and Triss were, you know, talking and were like, well, it was going to take them, you know, a few, you know, a few to take over the council fully. So we thought we had time. We didn't expect this. And it, they were so lazy. They didn't see it. They were so caught up in their own little world, their fantasy world, that never really existed. It existed in their heads, and they told themselves it existed, and that's so, no more exemplified than the, the last chapter in the banquet, which me and Josh talked thoroughly over, that now that this has happened, their entire reality has crumbled. And we see that especially in Tesea. Uh, Tesea's entire world has crumbled. Uh, you know, she is all, you know, I've talked about, she has what appears to be OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. She, everything has to be orderly, clean, correct. Everything must be the way it was, the way it is, the status quo. Um, which is why she finds, you know, uh, what Philip is doing and what Vilgefortz is doing absolutely crazy, uh, and is trying to stop them, but fails to understand that, there is no stopping this. That this boulder has already been rolling down the hill for a long time, and it just now hit its target. Uh, and because that she was so obsessed with order and cleanliness and the way it was supposed to be and the way it was, she failed to ever see that boulder. Um, and her entire world came crumbling down upon her. Everything. Now she has nothing left. Uh, you know, it, it, it takes Triss pleading her to help her teleport Geralt away, uh, just in hopes of having some people survive. Because as far as she's concerned, all of them could burn, because they have destroyed her beautiful, orderly process that is the Mage Brotherhood, failing to understand that it died a long-ass time ago. Uh, and that's the real tragedy of all this, is beyond the senseless death and the, the, the destruction of uh, you know uh, of a system that had worked for years, and the destruction of the personal wants and needs of three very particular individuals stuck in the middle. It also led to the disillusionment 
of what the mages were. That's what Amiru sought to do. The mages defeated him and his army at Sodden Hill, so all he had to do was shake them out of it. You know, get them out of, uh, uh, you know, take them out of the board. And the only way to do that was to expose the lie that is the truth. All it took was one simple thing. Convince the kings to you know, make their own uh, meeting. Make the mages scared for once in their life of the power that they hold. And then, boom. That's all it took. One fragile little ego stroked until it exploded. That's all that needed to happen. That's all he had to do. Now, the Kahir stuff. This is the very first time in the books we get his name. Um, I've been calling him Kahir throughout it because not only have I, you know, read the books multiple times, uh, but also because on my spoiler rule that if it's in the show, it doesn't count as spoilers. So, you know, Kahir has an increased role during his Nilfgaardian time uh, in the show. So I've just been calling him that. But I think it's important that he has been presented as nothing more than the Black Knight, the, the, the knight with the feathers of the birds of prey on his helmet. Just this demonic presence, basically. And we see that no more than when Siri is fleeing, and she sees him and he, she hears his voice as some sort of disgusting thing. She sees, he sees his menacing, terrifying eyes, and so she lashes out, and she, and she strikes him and takes his helmet off and sees, for the first time, his eyes weren't menacing, just calmly and quietly blue. He's not some evil demonic force out to get her. He's a young man. And that, right there, is part of a larger thing that I have been talking about. Perceptions and the way our own biases and our own personal inner thoughts, our own ideas, inform what we see and what we hear. And what we do. Kahir, uh, in his own perspective, saves Siri from the slaughter of Sentra. From Siri's perspective, Kahir took her away uh, and was, you know, going to do bad things to her. And we'll come back to that in future books because that will be expounded upon later. Just note that she said, You will not touch me ever again. Perspectives. It's always different, one side and the other. Um, and so we now see that Kahir was not this evil, demonic presence. He wasn't this black knight of pure evil. He's just a kid. A kid in way over his head. In a situation that he doesn't quite fully comprehend yet. We'll get to that later. Next book. Now, the Vilgefort stuff. Um... Me and Josh talked quite a bit about Vilgefort's being, you know, the dark mirror and how Sapkowski basically shoots that down immediately with having Geralt go, oh, fuck off, basically. Well, it's taken to the next extreme here of when Geralt and Vilgefort confront each other, Vilgefort has this monologue about how you must choose my side and should we really continue this play of uh, good versus evil, there's no such thing, and, the, and the, you know, choose my side and we we shall rule together, blah, blah, blah. N not really, but, you know, his, his monologue's intentionally designed to conjure up that kind of image. So, we 
purely in the perspective of having read Geralt so many times, you know, he's been in, you know, we've up to this point, we've read three and a half books. Um, and we've never seen him thoroughly lose a fight in any way whatsoever. Hell, even in this chapter, when viewed through Kahir's lens, when he was watching uh, Geralt take out the Scoyotel, he was quick. His seemingly light attacks would take people's heads off. And he seemed incredibly unnaturally calm about everything. So now, because of the flash forward, we know that Geralt was always going to survive, but his but he admits his only mistake was actually participating in the fight and not just trying to run away and get to Ciri as fast as possible. Vilgefortz goaded him, and he never stood a chance against Vilgefortz. We expect, after that great monologue by the evilest Vilgefortz, after the dark mirror stuff from last chapter, that... Geralt would triumph over evil, good always wins, and thus Vilgefortz shall be slain. No, not at all. What happens is instead Vilgefortz trounces Geralt and breaks his leg that will never fully ever heal again correctly, therefore ever having a constant pain and a limp in his leg. That's what happens when reality meets fiction. And that, I think, is a brilliant move on Sapkowski's part, is to establish this high fantasy world uh, with all these little things. Um, and we have a character who's clearly awesome and badass and can do anything, and he's so cool, right? To then immediately trounce him. That's so rare in fiction. It's beyond ridiculous how little that ever actually happens in fiction we have our heroes lose but they're in minor ways and it's it's never done in a way so matter of fact like this scene right here with Vilgefortz and I love it to bits because yeah of course he lost Vilgefortz is older than him has far more experience than him uh, and of course he may not be a mutant like Geralt is but he does have the upper hand uh, and sooner or later, you know, Vilgefortz is going to have to be taken out one way or the other. And who knows if Geralt's going to survive it or if anybody else is going to survive it for that matter when that time comes. So this this chapter is brilliant and wonderful. It, it, you know, it is incredibly paced in a way that grabs you, but scruff the neck, refuses to let go and basically takes you on this journey of pure chaos and hell as everything that was part of the plan or uh you know sub uh, the happiness of our family was almost guaranteed to then immediately meet be you know s swatted out uh out of here you know we don't know exactly what happened at the end we'll get to that later um you know uh, she sacrificed herself for siri did for siri to get away we don't know exactly what happened to siri quite yet we'll get to that later but we do know that she was heading for tor Lara, and there's only one way out of there and tor Lara blew up when the portal was activated so you do the math and then Geralt is severely injured and is now sitting in brokelone forest healing uh meanwhile several mages are dead the entire brotherhood of sorcerers is gone both the council and the chapter uh, everything is in chaos. And not only that, but outside of this one situation, because Applegat was killed in Chapter 1, he never got to deliver his message. And because of that, the Dalangra operation happened. Nilfgaard is marching across the border now. War has begun. Chaos has descended upon the continent. And there is nothing left. 
no no your side no my side no neutrality it is just pure survival now who cares who wins as long as our family can be together but they won't see each other for a very long time so spoilers real quick um, I just want to talk about something real brief. Uh, you know, obviously, Yen has been, you know, compressed into a statue, and we will deal with that in a bit. Uh, and Siri is off in the Korath Desert, go, about to embark on a very dark and tragic arc that will see our wonderful princess slash witchress broken down into a million pieces. But I do want to talk about that the way some people read a particular section of this chapter, and I, and this is pure speculation on my part on the show's behalf, but I am pretty certain, just, I get that feeling. When Ciri is being tracked down by one of the mages, Artur Terranova grabs her, and and uh, Philippa gouges out his eyes to stop him, and then Geralt comes in behind and chops his head off. Now, uh, this is understandable. Geralt made, the, made his promise last time, you know, last book, touch a hair on her head. <laughs> you know, and I will kill. I will kill mercilessly. Uh, but some people read this as Geralt making up for what happened to the lesser evil um, n by not siding with Renfri and going and getting Stregobor. Um, that he's finally taken a stand to protect the princess that was abused for why she was born. There is a way to read that, yes. I don't wholly agree. I think it is him fixing what would have begun Renfri, or trying to at least. Renfri was way too far gone. I've talked about this during the Lesser Evil short story, and I think I talked about it briefly with Josh uh, a couple of times. Renfri was renamed, it was, it had taken the moniker of Shrike, a bird that impales its victims on spikes. And this was a known fact about the real Renfri. She had no mercy left. She was not a good person anymore. She was pure and utter evil, just like Stragobor. The correct decision would have not been to get involved, but because who Geralt is, he had to make sure he saved as many lives as possible and thus caused the slaughter in the first place. So this isn't him taking a side. It is him trying to prevent Ciri from going down the same path as Renfri. He ultimately fails, considering that she's going to be, you know, in the Korath Desert abandoned, and then with the rats, and is going to become a horrible person before she can ever be redeemed again. And the question remains, can she be redeemed? But, you know, we'll get there in, in several books' time. But the show, the Netflix show, has went out of its way to increase Stregobor's role from the lesser evil, putting him... Uh, in in more things, more book stuff, as well as putting him on the chapter, uh, having him involved in the Brotherhood. Um, so I have a feeling that this is what's going to happen, is that he will take the place of Artar Terranova uh, in uh, the upcoming season, season three, at the time of this recording, uh, which is guaranteed to have Thanid. Uh, and uh, Geralt will take his head off, and it was supposed to be, oh, how far the Geralt has come, correctly making the choice, you know, n not taking the sidelines like he did last time, and getting a quote-unquote innocent woman killed. I mean, that's clearly what the show thinks of Renfri. That's not what Renfri actually is. She was a psychopath, a sympathetic one, an understandable one, and a very tragic one, but a psychopath nonetheless. So... You know, this is just theory crafty on my end, but I've been seeing evidence of it for two seasons now. And considering the track record of this show, 
I highly suspected of them, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm kind of icky on it. Um, if they execute it well, it could be interesting. If they execute it badly, it can be really fucking bad. Um, and this this is mainly about the books, but I just wanted to shine that in just in case of, you know, by the time Season 3 comes out, I will be done, you know, covering the book, so I won't be talking about Witcher any longer. Uh, but if anybody wanted my opinion on that, assuming I'm correct, here it is. And considering the track record of these writers, I don't expect them to do it well. It could be done well with the right writers. They ain't them, I'll tell you that much. But anyway, I'll still see you next time. Uh, I'll be joined by Josh once again to talk about the aftershocks of the Thanat coup uh, in Chapter 5. Till then, see ya. Bye.